All right. Well, if you'd like to, you can go ahead and turn in your uh, Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. It's going to be a few minutes before we read the text, uh, but you can uh, have your place there. We'll also put it up uh, on the screen when we get there. Okay, one other thing. Lots of things to talk about today. One other thing. I know they didn't make the playoffs, but didn't the Columbus Blue Jackets have a good end of the season? Yes. Okay. Fewer Blue Jackets fans here than Buckeye fans, I take it. Um, But yes, it was a good end of the season. So, all right. Well, I have long suspected, and uh, Facebook has further convinced me, that the favorite Bible verse of Americans is Matthew 7-1. And actually, it's the first three words of Matthew 7-1 that are the favorite Bible verse of Americans. And here's what it says. Do not judge. How many of you have heard that Bible verse? Do not judge. And I find it very interesting that the King James Version... The King James translation is usually the translation that is most often quoted. And and you can get it down to two words if if you quote the King James, and it becomes simply, judge not. You, you might have noticed in our culture, it is becoming uh, almost impossible to make any religious, ethical, or moral judgment that is not universally accepted by the culture without being met by those two words, judge not. Now, society has accepted all kinds of religious, ethical, and moral judgments, and I think it's actually impossible to live life without making such judgments. Uh, but, but society has embraced a number of these. So a religious judgment like this, all faiths lead to the same place, can be made, and you're not met with judge not. Uh, you can make a moral judgment like all lifestyle choices are equally valid, and, and you're not going to be met with judge not. Now, those are judgments. Both of those things are judgments that people have made, but they don't uh, get met with this, this admonition to judge not. You know, you dare to speak against a lifestyle uh, choice that the Bible condemns, and you are going to have this scripture and a couple others thrown at you very quickly. Say something like this. Sex outside of marriage is always wrong. And Matthew 7, 1 is headed your way like a heat-seeking missile. I mean, just get ready. You know, dare to disagree with the conventional wisdom regarding uh, religion and faith. Say something like this. Well, you know, it really doesn't make sense that uh, all faiths that teach such different things would all be equally true. It just doesn't, that just doesn't make sense. Or say something like this, Islam is abusive to women. Try that one. And you're going to have Matthew 7, 1 headed your way. I mean, it doesn't take long. Like, you know, it's like zero to 60 and zero seconds. You know, it's just, it is coming your way. Uh, I think it's gotten to the point where if we're honest, uh, even though the the national motto technically remains in God we trust, I think practically the national motto of the United States of America is judge not. 
feel free to test this for yourself. If you do not believe what I'm telling you, test it out for yourself. Facebook is a great place to test this out. So just go on there, make any type of moral, ethical, or religious judgment, and see what happens. You'll just have friends from all over the world typing as fast as they can, judge not. And if you happen to choose a moral issue uh, to, to speak out on, you're likely to hear another verse, John 8:11, which I think is America's second favorite Bible verse. And here's what it says, neither do I condemn you. So spoken to a woman caught in the act of adultery, kind of awkward, uh, and, and it was spoken to her by Jesus. You know, it's increasingly uncomfortable to say anything that reveals that you're a person who has thought about religion, ethics, and morality and determined that some are better than others. It's increasingly difficult to do that. Uh, I, I have had a number of conversations with people, and I will confess that I sort of enjoy the debate uh, that happens on Facebook. Uh, so if you're not already my friend and you ever think about friending me, just be forewarned. I like to debate. Even if you call it an argument, I might like that too. <laughs> and so, so just be prepared for what you get. If you don't want to be my friend, I understand because that's what, that's what comes with it. Um, but but it, it's increasingly uncomfortable to say anything about anything. And in these conversations that I've had with people, I have found that folks will go to ridiculous extremes to avoid passing any judgment about anything. I mean, you can come up with something that you thought everybody in the world believed was wrong. And about the best you can get out of people is, well, that that would be wrong for me. But, But I couldn't say that that would be wrong for someone else. You know, I think we used to do much better with this. Uh, I, I think there was a time in our culture where you could kindly critique and even criticize the beliefs of other people while affirming their right to believe and act as they saw fit. And we called that tolerance. We called that tolerance. I disagree with you. I will tell you I disagree with you. I think your beliefs are wrong. I think what you're doing is wrong. But hey, it's a free country. You have the right to do as you please. And we call that tolerance. But do you realize that today that is an outdated understanding of tolerance? That's no longer what it means. Today what is meant by tolerance is still to allow others to believe or act as they wish and to support their right to do so. But the new definition of tolerance includes a prohibition against ever offering a critique or criticism of another's beliefs or actions, no matter how kindly you offer the critique. In fact, it goes even further. Uh, Larry Osborne says, and I agree with this, that tolerance used to mean granting others the freedom to be wrong. But today, tolerance has largely come to mean this, quote, Affirming that everyone is right, no matter what they believe or what they do. And that is what it means today. I don't think you need me to 
to say much more to make the case. You see it. You know that's what it means. And many Christians have bought into this new definition of tolerance. Uh, I have personally witnessed this understanding of uh, tolerance embraced by many Christians uh, over the last 11 years or so uh, that I have been a pastor. Tolerance now means affirming that everyone is right about whatever they think or do. And you know, that's really hard to walk that out. It's it's really hard uh, because that's just objectively not true, and so it creates really weird things that happen to people. So one of the strangest to, to me has been witnessing people who otherwise are very concerned about feminist issues and see them at the same time unwilling to ever offer any critique of Islam, even though it's extremely abusive to women. So we've bought this notion of tolerance, and so we have to affirm, they feel, these two things that cannot both be affirmed. Really weird stuff. You know, it's to the point now where the only thing it is okay to be intolerant of is intolerance, which is sort of funny if you think about it. I mean, to be truly tolerant, wouldn't you have to tolerate intolerance? And it's very low-hanging fruit, such low-hanging fruit that I'm not even going to uh, go into it, but all of you have seen uh, evidence of those people who fight for tolerance, but as they are doing it, they are the harshest, meanest, most intolerant people that you have ever seen. I just went on YouTube last night and looked a few of these up, and uh, one of the interesting ones was uh, uh, the, this lady had self-titled her YouTube video, I Hate Pro-Lifers. <laughs> and the whole video was how much she couldn't believe how intolerant pro-life people were. Okay. <laughs> All right, I guess I did reach up and take a little piece of low-hanging fruit. All right. So dare make a religious, ethical, or moral judgment in the United States and be ready to be reminded of the favorite Bible verses of the tolerance enforcers. Now, here is a major weakness when it comes to the very liberal use of these verses that the tolerance enforcers like to throw around. They fail to consider an all-important truth, and that is that all meaning is context-dependent. You know what we mean by that, right? You can't know what anything truly means unless you understand the context in which it was said. And this politicians know this very well. They say all kinds of things, not meaning anything close to what gets reported that they said. All meaning is context-dependent. And what we're going to do here in a few minutes is look at some of these frequently used passages and see... What do they really mean if we consider them in their proper context? But I want to be clear about something before we go on, and that is that I want you to know that I believe tolerance is very important. I really think it is, as it has traditionally been understood. You know, if you're visiting with us today and you've heard that Christians want to control every aspect of your life and force you to believe like they do, and force you to live like they do. Now, 
I'll concede there may be some who call themselves Christians who that accurately describes them, but I I have to tell you, at least in my own experience, if you're hearing you're not a Christian, in my own experience, that has not been what I have found to be true of most Christians. You see, tolerance as it is traditionally understood benefits Christians. It's very beneficial to us, and it is good for all of society. I want you to be free to believe and act as you do within certain parameters, just as I want to be free to believe and act as I do. Do not ever let anyone convince you that Christians are against tolerance. We are not. But what we do think is important is to maintain a culture where open and honest dialogue can happen, even on issues where we disagree and even on issues where we may think uh, that, that each other are wrong. You know, for all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, tolerance as it is now defined is very misguided, detrimental, and can even be dangerous. I am for tolerance, old definition. Tolerance, new definition, has a lot of dangerous potential. And again, I think it's dangerous for both Christians and non-Christians alike. So I want to suggest a number of dangers here today that I think come into play when we embrace this new definition of tolerance. And then we're going to look at those texts that are so often used and see what they mean when they're considered in their proper context. So here are some of the dangers of embracing the current, the new definition of tolerance. First of all, I see in that the danger of timidity. Now, when you, Christian, buy into this new definition of tolerance, when you agree that all religious, ethical, and moral judgments are off-limits, you are effectively silenced on any issue of importance. You you are completely silenced. You, You become so timid, you risk becoming so timid that you are unable to speak up, even when speaking up is completely warranted. Now, one of the biggest problems that I think we have as a culture is that people are afraid to say anything about anything to anybody. So minority positions are assumed to be the majority position because people who disagree don't say so. We get things like this. All reasonable people believe that abortion should be legal in the first trimester. That's obvious. We know this. All people believe that. All reasonable people do. Really? Why do we know that? To the extent that people believe that that is true, why, why is there that perception? I would say that it's because a huge number of people who don't believe that have been convinced that they should just remain silent about it that this is something that shouldn't be discussed in polite company. And so we become timid, and the culture loses because of our timidity. Timidity causes us to shrink back from acting in the best interest of a friend who's making self-destructive decisions. Because after all, who are we to judge how many people they sleep with? Who are we to judge how much alcohol they consume? Who are we to judge how many people they gossip about? 
Who are we to judge how often they lie on their taxes? Who are we to judge how unkind they are to their spouse? Who are we to judge if their screaming at their children constantly is a good thing or a bad thing? And so we shrink back. We deny our friends the help that they need. You know that sometimes people need and sometimes I need and sometimes you need things we don't think we need. Yes. Sometimes we need to hear things we don't want to hear. But when we embrace this new definition of tolerance, all this help that is available to one another goes out the window. And everybody just says, well, what can I do? When we embrace the new definition of tolerance, there is real danger that we get to the place where we lose the ability to distinguish truth from error. You know, you have judge not screamed at you enough times, get told that you're an intolerant bigot enough times, that after a while it starts to wear you down. You, you, you unless you're just like really belligerent such as I am, you... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I hope I'm not, but uh, you, you can start to think, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I am just a mean-spirited bigot. You, you start accommodating yourself to the idea that, well, you know, maybe they have a point. You know, who am I to say? And before long, you begin to lose the ability to distinguish truth from error. Uh, I've seen this personally happen with a number of Christians who were absolutely horrified to discover that other Christians actually believed that if you did not receive Christ as your Savior, you would not go to heaven. I mean, Christians, perhaps for years, that somehow sat in a church and didn't connect those dots, and then the dots finally get connected to them, and they come and say, really, that's what we believe? They accommodated themselves to the demands of the tolerant. And now they've gotten to a place where they can't understand or believe one of the clearest teachings in the scriptures that they say they love, that they say they base their life on. When we embrace the new definition of tolerance, there is great danger of moral erosion in our own lives and moral erosion in our culture. You know, it is not a very long uh, trip from I can't say that's wrong for them to why is that wrong for anybody to I can do that if I want. That is just not a very long drive, folks. You can get there pretty quick. You know, when we lose the ability to see right and wrong as being the same for everyone, it isn't long until we lose the ability to distinguish right and wrong in our own lives. And when we shut ourselves off from our lives being evaluated, judged, if you will, by brothers and sisters who love us, we close ourselves off from ever being challenged, and then we are left. If nobody else can ever say anything to us, we are left only to our own conscience which Ben did a great job three or four weeks ago uh, convincing us that our own conscience is unreliable. And that's all we're left with. 
When we embrace the new definition of tolerance and shut ourselves off from evaluation and the loving judgment of others, we cut ourselves off from the help that we desperately need in our lives. Another danger of embracing the new definition of tolerance is that uh, we run the risk of ceasing to share our faith. You know, the reason we share our faith And a lot of Christians try to act like this is not true anymore. But the reason we share our faith is because we believe that Jesus is a better choice than all the other choices people are making. We have made a judgment. Jesus is better. And we've made another judgment. And that is that Jesus is the only way that anyone in the world can be saved. Sharing your faith with someone is done because we have determined that life apart from Jesus is not as good as life with Jesus. We've determined that people have made a wrong choice. And so we share our faith. There is no rationale for sharing our faith if all faiths are equally valid And lead to the same place. No rationale whatsoever. And so if we embrace the new new definition. Then we'll no longer see our faith. As offering anything unique. Anything preferable. To any other faith. And we will become people who at best can say this. And this is where many Christians today sadly are. Well I've found that Christianity works for me. But I would not presume to say that that's what's best for someone else. You know, we don't even have to embrace the new, nef- uh, the new definition of tolerance to, to struggle here. The, the societal pressure can become so intense that even if we disagree with the definition, in many ways it, it becomes very effective at almost forcing our compliance, at least in how we act. Because we become so concerned with the disapproval that we know is going to be heaped on us if we speak up. And so we just don't. And that leads to the final uh, danger that I want to mention today. There may be more, but these are uh, the ones that I wanted to talk about today. If we accept this new definition of tolerance, uh, or we allow ourselves to be silenced because the societal pressure to act in accordance uh, with the wishes of the tolerance enforcers is so intense. Here's what I believe uh, we Christians do. We end up abandoning people who are far from God in their condition of being far from God. You know, we decide there's nothing we can say. Either because we've Uh, decided that all uh, beliefs and choices are equally valid or because we can't bear the thought of the the scorn and the pressure that's going to be uh, raining down on us and so we just pull back from sharing our faith. And people far from God are deprived of the Christian witness that they are desperately in need of. And they are left by us in their condition of being far from God. We, we abandoned them. This new definition of tolerance makes us captives. We become captives of timidity. 
We become captives of indecision, completely unable to discern the truth. We, we become captives of moral relativism, which leads us to captive, uh, captivity to immorality. We become captives of fear. All because of a few Bible verses that people use to say that we cannot make any moral judgments, any religious judgments, any ethical judgments, all because these Bible verses are repeated over and over again, repeated so often that they just wear us down. What we need to do with this, as with everything, is that we need to turn to the Scripture and find out what the Scriptures really say on this topic. Are the people who are so quick to quote Matthew 7-1 and John 8-11 right? Are Christians wrong for weighing in with their religious, ethical, and moral judgments about the beliefs and actions of other people? Well, I want us to look at Matthew 7 and John 8 and see what we find. Now, to understand these passages as to understand anything, and I touched on this a few minutes ago, we have to consider these things in their context. So let's do that and see what we discover. First, there's Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Here's what it says. I think you can follow along on the screen behind me. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then a very interesting verse here. Uh, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So one of the things that we need to know, first of all, about the context of of this teaching of Jesus is that it comes uh, immediately on the heels of his very provocative teaching about earthly riches. And so if we want to get very specific in what the context is, it probably has something to do with not judging one another on material matters. It likely is intended as a warning about the ease with which we make judgments toward successful people. Or it could probably go the other way and be about the ease with which we make judgments about uh, people who from our uh, naturalistic point of view uh, appear to be unsuccessful. Or the ease with which those who have made financial sacrifice for the cause of Christ will uh, criticize those who have maintained some earthly wealth. So that's one thing to keep in mind, that that's probably the most specific context. Also notice that Jesus' teaching cannot in context literally mean that all judgment is being placed off limits. Verse 5 is a part of this context, and it says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then what? Then you will see clearly to help your brother who has the speck in his eye. 
Jesus is saying that you are not fit to evaluate and help someone else when you have a much larger issue that you have not been willing to have dealt with in your own life. But if you've dealt with your own mess, Jesus says you can help someone with their issue. So there's no way that this teaching of Jesus rules out all evaluation and all judgment. So what does it rule out? Uh, we could go into much more depth than I'm going to here today, but, but just to, to tell you what I believe, I believe it rules out pronouncing a person guilty before God. In other words, there's a difference between making a judgment about someone and seeing yourself as their ultimate judge, as if, as if your judgment is sealing uh, their fate. Uh, that is something that is off limits for us. We are not able to stand in God's place and pass what I would call ultimate judgment uh, on anyone. It rules out approaching someone in a harsh and unloving manner. It rules out hypocritically judging and trying to fix someone else when your own life is just a wreck. It rules that out. Now, if we took the time to expand beyond the text that we're going to look at today, we would find the Bible commanding us not to judge a number of very specific things. The Bible is very clear that we're not to judge other people's motives. It's very clear that we're not to judge by appearances. It's very clear that we're not to judge on matters where uh, where, where uh, it really is a matter of personal conscience, that there's not a, a clear right and wrong, but a universal prohibition against all evaluation and making judgments is not found in this text, and it's not found in the Bible. In fact, at least for, uh, for a topic that concerns Christians, discipleship and accountability and discipline are impossible if we're not able to make judgments. We have to make judgments. And I find verse 6 very interesting. The, the way that I understand it is that we have to be very thoughtful about how much we continue to try to persuade an obstinate person. So whether we're sharing the gospel or standing up for something that is right ethically or morally, sometimes we get to the place uh, where, where we are placing precious truths in front of people who are so hostile that our witness only serves to infuriate them and cause them to turn on us in anger. And so sometimes we have to be willing to walk away when it becomes a person, obvious a person is uh, unwilling to receive the truth. But I want you to notice this. Verse 6 requires judgment. A judgment to be made on who is a dog and who is a pig. <laughs> Tell that to your friend the next time they quote Matthew 7. 1. Well, actually, if you go over to 6, it says we have to discern who the dogs and pigs are. And uh, I've done a little discerning, and I've decided that you are... No, just, that's, that's a joke. That's a joke. Just absolute total joke that don't ever do that. That's a joke. All right. But the point is, the text does not preclude making some judgments. It can't. So what about John 8, 11? What do we find there? Well, let's read it and find out. Here's what it says. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. 
At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses command us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those uh, who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Uh, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she answered. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, first of all, what a wonderful story of grace this is. Well, what a wonderful example uh, that Jesus gives us of a gracious and loving response uh, to someone whose life has been less than what God is pleased with. And this is, this is uh, uh, an example of how we should act toward people. Our actions should be grace-filled. Uh, our actions should be love-filled actions. Um, just love the way Jesus uh, just puts these uh, Pharisees in their place. I mean, it, it is just a wonderful uh, story, and I've dealt with this in a lot more detail in past messages. But for our topic today, let me just point out a couple of very simple facts. When Jesus says that if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her, he is not saying either that what the woman did is okay Or that since we all sin, we just have to let sin slide. He's not saying that. That is not even close. And yet that is what is suggested by virtually everyone who uses this verse to say, judge not. He is not saying that since we all sin, none of us can ever speak up against sin. He is very specifically saying that the carrying out of ultimate justice... The application of sin's penalty must be done only by someone who is without sin themselves. And then what do we find? Everybody leaves and Jesus is still standing there. Jesus is the judge that will execute final justice. He is the one who will say to every single one of us, either welcome home or depart from me. It is Jesus. He is the judge. The the execution of justice is not our role. Ultimate judgment is not our responsibility. But that does not mean that we don't make sound judgments. Notice that Jesus very clearly identifies the woman's actions as sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That part of the text is never quoted. Never quoted. When this is used to say, don't judge. 
Friends, you cannot slice it any other way. That is a judgment. Jesus did not excuse her sin. He did not call it something more palatable. He did not ignore it. He did not sweep it under the rug. He said, leave it. Leave your life of sin. He showed her grace. But then he demanded that she stop sinning. Those who so casually throw this verse around never bother to consider the whole context of the story. Jesus names sin for what it is and says that it has to stop. So these passages don't teach that the proper course of action is to stop making all judgments. They teach that the proper course of action is to judge properly, which means judging in line with the standards and principles of judgment that Jesus taught and that the Bible uh, teaches. So let's consider uh, one other um, passage for today. There are certainly more. There are lots of texts that uh, we could look at. But one other passage that helps us with this issue of judging and what the Bible says is 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 9 through 13. Here's what these verses say. This is the Apostle Paul uh, uh, writing. I have written in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. I just love the way Paul put that in there. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slander, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat." What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now, when considered with all of the uh, other things that the Bible says on this topic, uh, this text should not be taken as an admonition against any evaluation Uh, of the beliefs or actions of people who are not Christians. Sin is sin wherever it is found, and it's okay to name sin as sin wherever it's found. But in context, what Paul is doing here is he is calling for action to be taken against someone. He's not just saying make a determination. He's saying do something about what you've made a determination about. Uh, he, he is saying that discipline needs to be implemented, that you need to stop fellowshipping with someone. So he's not just calling for determination on someone's beliefs or actions. He is calling for you to respond. He is calling for you to compel a change in their behavior. And so that is the context for Paul saying that Christians are not to judge the world. It is not our place to try to enforce our will, Christian values on the world. doesn't mean we can't make a determination of what's right and wrong. It means that we cannot take action against. We can stay busy enough acting among ourselves to try to compel living in a way that pleases God. We have enough to do in the church. There's, there's plenty that needs attention here. But this is the context. 
Don't judge outsiders. You can take no action against them. But we need to take some action within the church, Paul is saying. And if you're a Christian, it definitely should be understood in such a way, uh, what Paul says here should be understood in such a way that the next time a brother or sister comes to you and, and very uncomfortably and, and yeah, I didn't, I wrestled with this, I'm not sure I want to do this, but I feel like I'm supposed to, hey, I have this concern about something I've seen in your life. This definitely means that your first reaction should not, either internally or verbally, be judge not. Because the Apostle Paul specifically says Christians are to judge those inside the church. So there's a lot more that could be said on this topic, but I'm going to leave it today with covering these two most uh, used verses and then this uh, additional one that I uh, thought was important to include. So how do we respond to all of this? What do we what do we make of all this? How do we how do we act on all of this? Well, the first thing that I want to be very clear about. I would hope this goes without saying, but I I just want to be very clear. My intent today is not to unleash like 200 or so fixers on Pataskala. (laughs) That is not my intent. We we are not uh, looking to unleash an army of people who are seeking wrong wherever it can be found and looking to write it. That's not what we're doing here today. But what I am hoping that will be accomplished today is that uh, we will be encouraged to uh, not buy into this new definition of tolerance, that we will be encouraged to continue to discern right and from wrong, continue to be willing to name right and wrong, continue to be willing to speak when necessary. Today, I'm hoping that God is going to allow these verses that we've looked at in context. Again, we could have gone much deeper with this, but but just this just easy look at context has helped us, I think, to, to think correctly about this issue of judging, to think biblically about this issue of judging. To, to realize, one of the things I hope happens today is that we realize that these often cited verses have been used in an incomplete way at best. Often they have been intentionally manipulated to mean what they don't really mean. And often they have been used to try to lead us to embracing wrong conclusions, to embracing wrong ideas. And I'm hoping today that we can break free from some of these wrong ideas. That we would break free from what I think is the tyranny of this new definition of tolerance. That we would break free from timidity. That that we would break free from the prisons of confusion that I think keeps many of us uh, from from being able to to just make determinations about what is right and wrong. We're a confused people. Culture is a confused culture. That we would break free from the moral erosion that happens in our own lives. The moral compromise that this new definition of tolerance is meant to support. That we would break free from having our witness silenced. And that we would no longer allow this false notion of tolerance to keep us from reaching out to those who are far from God. 
because we're more interested in not appearing judgmental or intolerant. Let me just make this real personal for all of us as I wrap this up today. You need people, and I need people, who care about you enough, love you enough, to be honest with you if they believe you're getting off track. Sometimes you need to hear, and sometimes I need to hear, what we don't want to hear. Sometimes we need the truth when we don't want the truth. And someone in your life needs you to love them enough and to care for them enough to lovingly, gently, carefully, respectfully, compassionately. If you don't do it with those things, you're not ready to do it, by the way. But lovingly, gently, carefully, respectfully, compassionately speak up when they're getting off track. So my hope here today is that we would reject the new definition of tolerance, that we would reject this misuse of Scripture, that we would believe the truth and that we would judge biblically. Why don't you stand up?